Welcome back to the Blowing Off Steam podcast. Today we are going to be talking about the Dyatlov Pass incident. It's a mysterious event that happened in Russia, and no one's been able to explain it. But that's what we do here. We just inform you on it, and we'll get into that right after this. Please clap. Thank you to all of those who did clap. Today we are going to be talking about the Dyatlov Pass incident. That's a thing that happened on the side of a mountain in Russia, which the name is slightly ominous, and we'll get to that later. Before we jump into the Dyatlov Pass incident, I'd like to mention that I have a shout-out form. It'll be in the, the link will be in the description of the podcast, so you can go on there, you can fill it out, and you can put your name, add some comments like, what you like about the show, what I can improve on, some topics you'd like me to cover. It's honestly up to you. I don't really mind. You can ask me a question. It's You can do whatever. Or you can just not fill it out. So then I also have a couple of shout-outs that I'd like to mention early. Uh, Terrell Jackson, he's my former football coach, but he posted my podcast on his Facebook page, and that got me a lot of listeners, and that was very helpful, actually. Uh, Also, I'd like to shout out Rebecca Lynn. She gave me some helpful advice, and I'm going to incorporate that into this episode. I have a new email, which is thebospodcast at gmail.com. It will also be in the description of the podcast. Last week, I had some comments. I mentioned an attache case, but I kept saying it attache. There's also some static in the audio where my mic was peaking. I'm going to try and fix that. Also, I'm going to try and slow down this episode. Some people were thinking I was talking too fast, and I'm going to work on that. People have also been asking me to introduce myself, so here it goes. I'm Wesley Kettle. I'm 14. I enjoy talking, obviously. That's why I started this podcast. Hoping to get into radio someday. I think that'll be fun. And, yeah, that's me. Let's get into the Dyatlov Pass incident. One of the strangest unsolved mysteries of the 20th century is what happened to nine hikers found dead at Dyatlov Pass in the Ural Mountains of Russia in 1959. The odd series of events started in the winter of 1959 when experienced outdoorsman and 23-year-old college student Igor Dyatlov assembled a group of 10 people to go on a skiing-slash-hiking journey through a northern stretch of the Ural Mountains in what was, at the time, the Soviet Union. The adventure wasn't just a group of college kids on a hike. It wasn't vacation. It was a mission. All of them, eight men and two women, were experienced outdoorsmen and women with grade 2 hiker certification, including ski experience, and the 90-mile journey would qualify them for grade 3 status, the highest possible certification in the country at the time. On January 25th, they set out into the cold and snow. Almost immediately, one man, Yuri Yudin, felt physically unwell and turned back for home. He could not have known at the time that his sickness would save him from certain death. The nine others continued onward. I apologize if I mispronounce some of these Russian names. They're kind of difficult to pronounce, so I'm going to try my best. On January 31st, the group reached a critical waypoint, a valley that marked the approach to what would eventually come to be Dyatlov Pass. There, they stashed extra gear and food that they'd need for their return trip. 
The following morning, they began their ascent, hoping to push over the pass and then make a camp. But a fierce snowstorm pushed them off their intended route and onto the slopes of a mountain called Kolat Sikil, which, in the language of the indigenous people who live there, means dead mountain. I'm not sure why exactly they would go camp in a place called Dead Mountain. It's kind of on them that they died. Oh no, is, can, can you put the stamp down on too soon if it was in like 1959? But I'm going to go with they shouldn't been camping on a place called Dead Mountain. If it was available, I'm sure ominous music would have been playing. But, you know. The altered route meant that the team had to choose a new campsite. Rather than retreating to a more protected area, they opted, for whatever reason, to camp on the mountain's exposed slopes. They, yeah, they sure seem like experts if they're camping on an exposed mountainside in the middle of a fierce snowstorm, which caused them to be blown off course. Real expert moves. Perhaps they simply didn't want to lose the ground they'd gained. Perhaps they were too cold and weary to fall back. In any case, they pitched their large shared tent where they would soon be subjected to temperatures that nosedive to around negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Researchers know this much thanks to journals and film recovered from the camp, but much of what transpired during the next two days on Colat Sikil is hard to understand. The group failed to arrive at a rendezvous point at a predetermined time, so search and rescue teams, including army units, set out to find them. The searchers found that three weeks later on February 26, 1959, they finally located the ruined camp amid a string of truly weird circumstances. How weird? Well, let's see. The tent was half covered with snow, torn open from the inside with no one around. The group's belongings, including vital necessities like shoes, had been left behind. A line of footprints indicated that the nine people had walked away at a normal speed, but some just wore one shoe or were totally barefoot. About a third of a mile away, there was evidence of a campfire along with the shoeless and mostly naked remains of two group members. Within several hundred feet between the campfire and tent, they located three more bodies frozen in poses that made it seem as though they were attempting to return to camp. It wasn't until May 4th that the weather warmed enough for investigators to track down the other dead, whose remains were found a few dozen feet from the chaotic campfire, their bodies lodged in a creek bed. Autopsies showed that the first six hikers found died of hypothermia, but three found in the ravine suffered a variety of terrible injuries, including skull and chest fractures. One woman's eyes and tongue were missing, yet there was no sign of a struggle which seemed to rule out foul play. Pictures recovered from cameras at the scene seemed to portray a group that started in high spirits but ended with dour, anxious faces, perhaps because they thought they were lost, or maybe there was some other danger afoot. One photo shows tree markings made by local Mansi people. Another shows an unidentified picture that some people believe could be an intruder, or more outlandishly, a yeti. Honestly, they were in the middle of a snowstorm. I don't know why they were taking pictures. But chances are, an unidentified figure in the middle of a snowstorm, probably a hiker. I mean, you can't really identify people in a snowstorm, so I'd imagine they wouldn't really know if it's a grainy 1950s footage from Soviet Russia where they weren't known for having high-def cameras. So, you know, unidentified, quote-unquote.
Officials first suspected that the Mansi may have been offended by the trespassers on their sacred land, causing them to lash out in violence against the hikers. But in the end, investigators concluded that no one else was on the mountain when the hikers died. By the end of May, the investigation was officially ended. The causes of death were listed as compelling natural force. Some documents were then classified, and the area was closed to public access for years following the incident. Given the circumstances, you can see how surviving family members might be unsatisfied with the government's vague conclusion. In the vacuum of an actual explanation, many wild theories took root. One, there was an avalanche, extreme high winds or wild animal attack, which doesn't seem like a wild theory. I mean, they're on the side of a mountain. Could happen. A possible fight, combined with a psychedelic drug obtained from locals, caused a wild sequence of events. I don't know why the local Mansi people would have psychedelic drugs. They seem to be like Native Americans, I'm assuming. I Please don't get on me about that, but I assume they're Native Americans. And I don't know, do, do Native Americans know about psychedelic mushrooms or something? I don't know why they'd have drugs. Deep infrasound vibrations conjured by winds roaring over the mountain pass incited panic in the group which is an actual natural thing. It's a standing vibration noise that causes panic in people if it, I don't know, it's just the frequency or whatever, it causes people to panic. Since some of the hikers' clothes were found to be radioactive, perhaps they stumbled unwittingly into a military weapons experiment. Or, you know, you know, this is the, this might have happened, you never know. Not a huge alien guy myself, but possibly. Maybe aliens were involved. Locals later told officials that they'd spotted unidentified flying objects over the area the night of the deaths. It was later revealed that the military was testing parachute mines in the region when the group was killed. Which, I don't know how helpful parachute mines would be. Like, I, I assume it's a mine being dropped from a parachute, as the name implies. But they don't get buried. You'd, like, enemies would probably see it, I'd imagine. You'd think... It'd be, it wouldn't be as helpful as, like, rockets, where you just launch them and they explode on impact. And they don't come down slowly. But, I don't know, it's the Soviet Russia. They didn't last too long. 69 years. So, you know, maybe if they hadn't used parachute mines, they wouldn't have failed. Now, more than 60 years later, the case escalated from regional authorities to a federal branch of the country's investigative committee, which obtained all relevant documents regarding the deaths as part of the research process. Now, this is now Russia. Soviet Union fell in the 90s. To begin the fresh inquiry, officials whittled down the list of 75 possible causes to just three of the most likely hypotheses, all of which centered on natural causes. A hurricane avalanche or snow slab okay i don't think I, i'm not sure i don't think the ural mountains are very close to an ocean and i'm pretty sure hurricanes have to have water or they're considered like blizzards or tornadoes so i'm gonna i'm gonna go ahead and cross that one off an avalanche or a snow slab so as we're about to mention in a second i don't think that's how that works because, you know, uh, if it was an avalanche or a snow slab, their prints would probably be covered up. You never know. But 
Investigators were dealt a tough hand from the start. None of the three possibilities seems to explain why the hikers slashed through their tent and fled without any clothes. There's no real evidence that an avalanche had taken place. In fact, more than a hundred subsequent expeditions to the area, no one has ever reported avalanches in the area. The hikers' footprints were visible and not covered by snow, further deflating the avalanche theory. That's what I said a minute ago. Although the tent collapsed laterally, there is no evidence of horizontal force that would have indicated sliding snow and ice. Now, all of these strange circumstances so puzzled Teodora Hadjiska that she launched Dietzlovpass.com as a comprehensive archive of the many documents and images relating to the case. Born in Bulgaria, she's one of the few who have taken the time to translate the many Russian files into English, and has created a comprehensive database of all the photos, evidence, and theories, making her an expert on the case. In an email interview, Hedjiska says that the information that's publicly available, either by ineptitude or more ominously by design, doesn't fully explain what happened to the hikers. After years of picking through the information, she has her suspicions about what transpired on that frozen mountain. Her take? The hikers were murdered. Hajiska says she thinks that something alarmed the group and that they clambered out of the tent. Then, her theory goes, armed people confronted them and there was a brief scuffle. The hikers were marched down to the tree line to die from exposure. They didn't know that. They thought the perpetrators were after their belongings, so they complied, she says. Certain that their victims would quickly perish in the life-draining cold, the murderers wandered back to the tent. I don't really subscribe to that theory. I don't know why any murderer or thief or criminal at all would go follow up them up a mountain through a blizzard to rob them. That That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Like... It'd be so much easier just to rob someone where there's not a chance of dying. I guess there's always a chance of dying, but you know what I mean. The half-naked group frantically, perhaps miraculously, managed to start a campfire which alerted their foes, who rushed back down the hill to finish them off. By then, the three who were wearing more substantial clothing had moved away from the fire in a bid to create a shallow snow den to survive the night. But soon they were found too, beaten to death and then dragged to the creek. It still lacks the who and why, but this explains the mysterious behavior of the hikers. It's a murder, so it doesn't have to make sense, says Hedjiska. Little can be safely deduced from those facts, but at least there's no doubt that someone helped them die. She feels certain that the group was under attack in three separate instances. At the tent, then the tree line, and then at the snow den. The whole ordeal must have taken hours. Even if something scared them at the tent, uh, avalanche, yeti, aliens... That something had to follow them to the cedar after they had time to make the fire. That's because building a fire takes time, which means that the hikers were under the impression that they would make it through the night. They also had the time and energy to make the den, and then something really awful happened to whoever was left alive while they were not in the den. She believes this hypothesis shows a pattern of assailants following the group and escalating the attack amid unbearably cold and perhaps blizzard-like conditions where confusion and panic affected all parties. Now, we still do not have a close to what happened at the Dietzloff Pass, but maybe you can draw your own conclusion. That's what I did. I assume that they were panicked by infrasound vibrations, 
or they avalanche. Uh, I, I don't think it avalanche. I think they were probably spooked by some natural thing, but you never know. That is an end to the Diet Slav Pass episode. Next week we're going to be talking about the mysterious bloop noise that no one has been able to explain in the ocean. It's a deep noise, no one knows what it is. And we'll see you next time on Blowing Off Steam with Wesley Kettle. Thank you for listening. Also, I would just like to apologize for the static this episode. I'm currently in the process of getting a new mic. Next week, I should have a better microphone for recording, so I don't think it'll peak anymore. Uh, Thank you for bearing with me on that. (laughs) Thank you.